right, grab a seat if you would. Hey, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1. If you've got a Bible with you, either a hard copy or on your phone tonight, we'd love for you to be in Romans 1. Um, as we continue through this... Um, as we continue through this book of the New Testament, we're going to be walking through for a little bit here. Uh, Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Um, I want to tell you about a conversation I was having. Um, a couple months ago, I was talking with a friend of mine, and uh, we were going back and forth and just talking about some, some health challenges he had had. Um, and in the midst of talking about these health challenges, he told me that he was going to be going to a doctor and um, that that doctor was going to be running a number of tests. And, and then he started to relay the concern that the test might actually come back and indicate he has cancer. Um, and so that's what I started to hear from him. And, and, and that was concerning to me. But then he said something that surprised me um, and, and almost shocked me to an extent. He said, Brian, in some, in some ways, I, I just hope the test comes back and says it's cancer. And that was surprising to me because you don't usually hear that from someone. And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. It's not that I want cancer. He says, I've just been sick for so long and I've taken so many tests and there have been so many negatives and so many we don't knows and so many we need to do more tests and so many like a battery of tests, so much of that, that if I just knew that it was cancer, then we would know how to treat it. And there was such a profound insight in that from an individual who is seriously looking down the barrel of potentially having cancer, going, at least if I know what I'm dealing with, then I'll know how to go against it. And what I want to think about tonight is I want to think for all of us about what we are dealing with. When it comes to this world, when it comes to the world we're living in, in light of my friend's comments, I want to set up the whole sermon this way. It said this phrase tonight, that effective treatment begins with accurate diagnosis. That effective treatment in the medical space is always going to start with an accurate diagnosis. And so for my friend to say, listen, if it's cancer, then I'll know what I have to do in order to treat it was so profoundly insightful. And here's what I want to do tonight. I want to try to give you what Romans chapter one, what Paul, what the scriptures are going to give us as a diagnosis of what is going on in our society today. And here's my contention. Uh, I know some of you are Christians and some of you aren't Christians and some of you used to be Christians. Or you're not really sure what you believe, but here's what I think is true of all of us. All of us know there is something terribly wrong with the world, right? Like you look around our culture, you look around our nation, you look around just everything going on. And if you're in the boat of like, everything is perfect right now, I would love to talk to you after the service and figure out how you're doing things because it is not. Like I just look around the world. And again, I think there's different politics in this room, different views, different ideologies. And yet all of us just look around the world and go, something is terribly wrong. And here's what we have to understand. That if we want to understand what we do about the something that's wrong, we have to have a proper uh, diagnosis first. And so here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to see what the diagnosis of Romans chapter 1 actually is about our world. And here's what people do. They look to a diagnosis and they say, this is how we're going to fix it. So you think, okay, there's a financial diagnosis. So the Marxist is going to say the problem with the world is wealth inequality. And so what we need to do is redistribute the wealth. And if we could just do that, it would fix everything. The capitalist is going to say the problem with the world is that people don't have enough money and the government keeps taking it in taxes. So if we just fixed the government and got that all fixed, then everything would be better. Listen, the secularist says the problem with the world is religion. And so if we would just get past all these old mythologies, then everything would be better in the world. The imperialist says the problem with the world is that country over there. And if we could just destroy their armies and take down their economy, then everything would be better. Listen, the critical theorist says the problem with the world is power. And if we can just level out the power dynamics in this world, then everything will be better. And what's haunting is actually there's like an element of truth in all of that. 
Like you can find any little ideology and you can find an element of truth within it. But if you land on any of these things I've just named or any of the other thousand options our culture uses to diagnose the problem that's going on with us, you'll never get deep enough. You'll never get deep enough into the human soul. So here's what we're gonna see in Romans chapter one tonight. And I want you to understand this diagnosis that the world is what the way that is, the, way, the world is the way it is because human beings have turned their back on God. That's why the world is the way it is. Because the God of the universe says, would you look to me? Would you trust me? Would you live the way you've lived? And all of us collectively as the human race and as individuals have gone, forget you, God. I'm going my own direction. I'm doing my own thing. And according to Romans chapter one, that is why the world is the way it is. That is why the world is immoral and corrupt. That's why we see what we see in the news. It's why you see what you see on social media. The last time you were horrified by something, the last time you were offended or shocked by something, it is because the world has turned their back on God and gone their own direction. And I want you to see this Romans chapter one. We're gonna start in verse 18. For those of you who don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. It says this, it says the wrath of God, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the, all the godlessness and wickedness of the people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And so it begins in chapter one, verse 18, by talking to us about the wrath of God. And tonight I wanna to talk to you about the wrath of God. And throughout the entirety of the end of this chapter, we're going to see the wrath of God and what that means according to Paul. Now, for so many of us, we have a picture in our mind of what the wrath of God is. It's like God up in heaven throwing lightning bolts down or raining fire down upon a city. And I don't wanna deny that in the scriptures, we see God's wrath and his anger kindled in that kind of visual and dramatic way. But what we're actually going to see here in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 1, is a very different picture of the wrath of God. And it is actually a picture that should make you very confident in God's love. Let me put it to you this way tonight. I think the fact that God is filled with wrath and anger towards sin, wickedness, and evil should make you more confident in his love, not less confident. It should make you more confident. And if you're just going, how does God's wrath make me confident in God's love? Well, let me just put it this way. I found this beautiful um, quote this week. I just thought he put it so well. Chris Jammy says this. He says, the wrath of God is never an evil wrath. God gets angry because he loves people like a mother would love her child if someone were to harm it. There is something wrong with the mother that never gets angry. It is safe to say that that is an unloving mother. Well, like, I just want you to imagine my wife sends my four-year-old to preschool next week and she comes home from the first day of preschool and she's got a bloodied nose and she's got bruises all over her. She just looks completely jacked up. And if she was told by the principal, actually, um, one of the teachers today harmed your child, abused her terribly. It, it was an awful scene. You can imagine the way my wife would actually feel, but could you imagine if my wife heard that and went, okay, and just took her home? There was no anger, no rage, no reaction, no emotion toward that. If my wife saw a beat up, bloodied four-year-old little girl and there was no emotional rage within her, no anger toward what had happened toward her child and the person, no anger toward the person who had done it toward our child, I would say there was something wrong with my wife in that moment, that that is not a loving act. It is not a loving act for a mother to look at an abused child and say, I don't feel anything for that. That is not love, and nor is it love for the God of the universe to look down at the abuse, to look down at the corruption, to look down at the sin and the wickedness and the harm that is inflicted upon people, and to feel nothing at all. This is the wrath of God. The reason we can be confident that God loves us is because God shows his wrath toward those who would harm us. That's the reason we can be confident that God loves us. If it was a wrathless God, it would be a loveless God. And again, for so many of us, we have this idea of the wrath of God, of him just being up in heaven, kind of this grumpy old man in the sky who throws lightning bolts at people who do things wrong. 
But that's not what the scriptures actually say. That there is this measured kind of anger God has toward those who would harm his people, toward those who would harm those that he loves. And again, if your picture is some dramatic visual thing, there's places for that in the scripture. Uh, Again, I think the book of Revelation is going to show us God's active wrath in this world. And yet theologians talk about what we see in Romans 1 being called the passive wrath of God. Let me actually bring you back to chapter 1 and verse 8 here. It says this, that the wrath of God is being revealed. It is being revealed. Like in other words, the wrath of God we're talking about in Romans chapter 1 here is not some end of days, end times when Jesus comes back wrath. It is something that is presently, currently, and continuously being revealed in this world. And you ask, how is this being revealed in this world? And here's a phrase you're going to see three different times in this text. You'll see it in verse 24, 26, and verse 28. It says this, that God gave them over. This is the passive wrath of God. The passive wrath of God is God looks at an individual who says, forget you, God, shakes their fist at him and says, I'm going my own way. What God will do in times like that is God will give you over to your sin, give you over toward your choices, allow you to go down to the destructive road that you have decided to go down. And this is what theologians call the passive wrath of God, that God allows people and God allows nations, God allows cultures to go down a road where they are being self-destructive and rather than stop them, he allows them in his wrath to go their own direction. And it's not just God letting us experience the consequences of our sin. It is that in a spiritual way, God has handed us over to the forces and the binding of sin. And this is what happens here. This is bad news for us. It is bad news for human beings that God would hand you over to the impulses of your heart. J.D. Greer says it this way, because when your heart, because your heart is not right, the absolute worst thing God can do is give you what you want. And this is it, right? Like because our hearts are so messed up, because we are so twisted, the worst thing God could do in this world is just say anything you want, you can have. Every parent knows this. If you're not a parent in this room, which almost none of you are, you get the principle, right? You don't give your kid everything they want because they don't know everything they should know. And this is what the God of the universe does. Part of God's wrath is that he hands you over. He says, if you want to go this direction, you can. And he allows you to. So I want you to see how Paul's argument continues. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed against human beings. And then it says in verse 19, it says, since what may be known of God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So this is a famous verse here in Romans, Romans chapter one and verse 20 that says, nobody has an excuse before God. People often use this to talk about people who are unevangelized or people in this world who just haven't heard about Jesus. And the claim of Paul is they don't have an excuse. Like everyone should understand who God is and what his qualities are all about. And if your question is, well, how can people possibly understand God? Paul's going to give you the reason here. He says it twice here. See, in verse 19, verse 20, it says the creation of the world. And then it says being understood from what he has made. Like in other words, Paul says, you have no excuse for not trusting in who God is. Why don't you have an excuse? Because the universe was created. See, this is the claim that Paul is going to make as the foundation of his claim that we have no excuse. The universe was created. Now, I say the universe was created. It had a beginning and in a moment it started. And that doesn't sound shocking to you at all. And that's because you live in 2022 because you're alive today. But do you know for most of human history, The Jewish and Christian claim that the universe had a beginning point and actually began at one point was thought of as scientifically illiterate and laughable. 
See, for all of human history, even going back to the ancient Greeks, the belief was that the universe was eternal. There was no beginning. There is no end. The universe just goes on forever in both directions on the timeline. It never started and it never ends. And that is what people believe. The smart, sophisticated, wealthy, upper-class, elite people believe for all of human history. The universe is eternal. And Christians and Jews who believed what the Bible said, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, those people were thought of laughable and stupid. And then the 1920s come. And a guy named Edwin Hubble starts looking through his little telescope. And he looks out into the skies and he starts to notice something that shocks the physicist world, shocks the astrophysics world. Here's what he starts to see. There's this red light shift, which indicates that actually objects all through space in every direction are flying out in every direction. And that is not at all what scientists expected to see. See, they thought there was a stable universe that we just kind of existed inside of for all time that the universe itself was set and then we moved around within it. But what Edwin Hubble proved in the 1920s is that the universe is expanding in every direction. And if that's true, it means that if we would wind the clock back, the universe would go from expanding to shrinking to shrinking to shrinking, ultimately down to one point. And that point at some point in the distant past was the time when the universe began. And we came to the theory called the Big Bang Theory. Now the Big Bang Theory, you might think is some competitor to the Christian faith. It's actually not at all. The idea that the universe had a definite beginning where, boom, everything started, that's what Christians have been claiming since the beginning. And they've been laughed at for thousands of years until the 1920s, a hundred years ago, where everyone went, actually, the Bible's right. Actually, there was a beginning. And here's Paul's claim. In the midst of a culture that doesn't even believe there was a beginning, doesn't even believe the universe was created, he's saying the universe was created. The God of the universe created it in a moment. He created everything there was. The universe is not an eternal. It is the creation of a creator. Now, why am I spending so much time on this? You're like, Brian, we get it. We've read the first verse of the Bible, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I don't think we fully internalize what that means for our lives. Let me put it this way tonight. That creating the world means this. That means God gets to define the world. Creating the world means God gets to define the world because that's what creators do. Uh, like if you are an artist in this room or if you make films or if you make music, when you create a piece, you get to define what it is. Others may experience it. Others may like it or dislike it. Others may have their opinions on it. But when I create something, I get to define what it actually is. Why? Because that's what creators get to do. Creators get to define their creation. Or let me take it out of the artistic sphere in case you're not an artist like I am not an artist. Um, raise your hand. This is not a trick question. If you have a social media account or have of any kind in your life. Okay, not a trick question. I'm not like going to dunk on you here. All right. Here's what I do too. Um, all right, so remember when you made your social media account of whatever it was, like your first one, if you think all the way back to like MySpace or Facebook or like, okay, the, oh, the, the good old days, right? Like you think you, so you logged in, you started making the account. What did you do? You logged in, you put in your email, you verified your identity, you put in your name, you put in your photo, you started putting in like your bio. And for some of you, you just do a legit bio that's helpful. It's like, here's where I work, here's where I live, here's what I'm all about. And some of you have some quote that says nothing about you. And it's like, oh, I'm artsy. You know, like that's all you're saying. But you get to create it, right? And you get to decide what your profile looks like. You get to decide what your grid aesthetic is, right? Like you get to pick that. And I don't get to choose that for you. Like if I look at your profile photo, I'm like, that's not a good one of you, right? I could tell you that, but I can't actually go in and change it. If I look at your little like about me part, I'm like, oh, I just don't think that's flattering for you. I can't change it. You can. Why? I didn't create the account. So I don't actually get to control it. I didn't create it. I don't get to define it. 
And can I just speak a few sentences over you tonight? You didn't create the world, so you don't get to define the world. You are not at liberty to define what this life is all about because you didn't create it. You don't get to say this is why the world exists because you didn't create it. You can have opinions and thoughts and feelings, but because you're not the creator, you are not the definer. Let me say it another way. You didn't create you, so you don't get to define you. You don't get to say this is who I am and totally apart from God. I'm just gonna define my own existence and my own life and my own thing and my own thoughts. You don't get to do it. You can have feelings and thoughts and opinions all you want. Knock yourself out. But you didn't create you, so you don't get to define you. And then here's what Paul's whole point is going to be on God creating the entire world. It's this. Um, You didn't create morality, so you don't get to define morality. Like, you don't get to declare what's right and wrong. And we live in a culture that says, you say what you think, and you say what you think. You live your truth, and you live your thing, which is completely self-contradictory, right? Like, none of us actually believe we should all create our own morality, but we all just kind of live as if it's true. And so here's what it is. Our culture says you define what's right and wrong for you, and the scriptures say, nope, you didn't create it, you don't get to define it. And that's what Paul is going to be so stuck on throughout this whole thing, that there's this creation order thing where because God created the world, he created it in a certain way, and our job is not to define our reality the way we want to. It is to get ourselves in line with what God actually created for his glory and for our good. Uh, I want you to see how it goes on this way. Um, In verse uh, 21, it says, for all they they knew God, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, and for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. From time to time, I stand on the stage and I point to the screen and I say, memorize this verse. This is a memorize this verse. This is one of the most significant verses when it comes to the human condition, when it comes to sin in the entire scripture. Here's what every single one of us in this room have done in our sinful state. We exchange the truth about God for a lie. And then we worship and serve the created things rather than the creator. All sin comes down to this. All sin comes down to you saying, thank you for this gift, God. I'm going to be all about your gift and not about the giver of the gift. I'm going to worship the creation, not the creator. All sin comes down to us exchanging the things God made for God himself. The biblical word all throughout the scriptures for this is idolatry. This is idolatry. This is sin. This is at the core of all of our rebellion against God. Here's the way I like to put it. We serve the created things rather than creator. We take the gift rather than the gift giver. It's like this. Some of you heard me say this. On my wedding day, um, my wife gave me this ring. Now, it actually wasn't this ring because I was in Lake Tahoe a few years ago and I was holding onto a banana boat thing and it popped off and it's at the bottom. Okay, so different ring, replacement ring. It was a tragic moment. Okay, anyway, sorry. This is why sermons go long. Okay, anyway, so my wife gives me this ring and and... And it's like a gift, right? And it's like this beautiful thing. I put it on my finger, like I have this ring. And I want you to imagine if you used into the marriage, I start to get like really excited about the ring. I'm like, I love this thing. And I'm like constantly looking at it. She's like, what's wrong? I'm like, oh, nothing, nothing, right? Like, and, and suddenly like, I'm, I'm like really into it. And then over time I start to like really get, I become this like golem creature. It's like my precious, right? Like, like I'm really into it. And like, I get home and my wife's like, how was your day? I'm like, Get away from me. Like, I'm going to spend time with my ring right now, right? Like, like as this happens, you're all giggling because you're like, that's so stupid. 
Because the ring means nothing. The ring was just a gift from her. And you're like super into this little gift. And you're like, wow, this is the thing. But here's what you all know. Two things are gonna happen if I turn into this weird golem-like creature about my wedding ring. Two things. Number one, my wife is not gonna be honored, right? My wife's not gonna be like, you know what? He's not into me, but he's into the ring I gave him. So maybe that's kind of honoring to me. Not at all, right? She's not gonna be honored in that. And then what else is gonna happen? If I just become this little guy who's like, I love you, right? I'm gonna become miserable. I'm gonna become unhappy. Because here's what happens when you get more obsessed with God's stuff than God. Two things. Number one, sin robs God of glory. And you were put on this earth to bring God glory. Like that is what God has designed you for, created you for. That's why in Romans chapter three, it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Like sin is you failing to bring God the glory that he's owed. So sin robs God of glory. But then listen, sin robs me of joy. That's what sin does. It robs God of his glory and it robs me of my joy. When I choose to lean into my sin, when I choose to lean into the things of this world rather than God, it robs me of my joy. And every time I say that, someone comes to me and says, well, I'm having a lot of fun sinning. And I go, knock yourself out. It doesn't last. Like, I really do believe this. I believe you can have fun. I believe you can have a great night drinking and just getting wasted. But a lifetime of that? Like, is that really joy for you? I believe you can have a great one night stand. And oh, it was so great. It was so cool. It was electric. It was wonderful. But that's no life to build. I believe you can steal money. I believe you can harm people. I believe you can lie, cheat, and steal, and do all kinds of things. But over the course of a life, it'll make you miserable. This is like the great McGriddle paradox, right? You McGriddle? Anyone? Oh, you guys are above McGriddles. Okay, I'm not. About once a quarter, I roll through for breakfast to McDonald's, and I get myself a McGriddle thinking this time it'll be better, right? But it's not, because every time you eat the McGriddle, it is like, I've died and gone to heaven, right? It is so good. They have infused syrup into the bun. It is just like perfect culinary. And you put it in your mouth and you were like, I'm so glad I'm alive in the 21st century. Like, that's what I think every time. But then like half an hour later, I'm like, I've made a terrible mistake. I should never eat a McGriddle. That's what sin is. Like sin is us just being like, this is fun. This is great. This is easy. But what happens every time is this. Man, sin is always, it hits your lips and it is sweet. It hits your stomach and it is sour. And I just want to call you toward this life where you understand that when you exchange the way of God for the way of sin, when you exchange God for the stuff he has given you, it will always taste sweet to your mouth. It will always be sour to your stomach. And what you want to do is live a kind of life where you are not robbing God of his glory nor robbing yourself of joy because I want you to know these two things are connected I want you to know your job in life is not just like begrudgingly obey God and just do your best to obey God and make sure you're doing that. And then if you're happy, then fine, okay. Like I want you to understand that your joy and God's glory are so deeply linked. Uh, Author and pastor theologian John Piper puts it this way. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Like God's glory is actually found in our satisfaction in him. When I feel deep joy in God, when I'm like, I want God more than anything else, in that moment of my joy, God is glorified. And you go, how do those fit together? Well, just think about it this way. Like, I want you to imagine, like, last Friday night, I took uh, my wife out for a date. And yeah, it was, it was awesome. We did a little date night. We got a babysitter to come, and we went to the date night, and it was just a blast. It was such a wonderful evening. And we have this great date, and I, like, planned it all out. I did all the stuff. End of the night, we're driving home. And my wife says, thanks so much for, for planning out this date night. It was just like a really special night for us together. And I want you to imagine, I look back at my wife. I didn't do this, but I want you to imagine. I say, say no more, say no more. 
It's not that I love it. It's that my du- as my duty as a husband, I bring you on dates. It's my assignment. It's my role. It's what I'm supposed to do. It is my duty. I'm going to be in deep duty, right? Like, like that's what's going to happen. Like if I look at my wife and I'm like, well, I just did this because I'm supposed to. Like that doesn't honor my wife. But in, in, in the other hand, what if I looked back at her from the driver's seat and said, hey, I love bringing you on dates. Like I, the best part of my week is when I get to hang out with you and just be alone with you and actually enjoy your company. I love it. It brings me so, it makes me so happy to take you on a date. My wife is not gonna look at me and be like, you are so selfish. All you think about is your happiness and your joy. Like she doesn't do that, right? My joy in her is actually honoring to her. It's the same with your God. It's like when you experience like a deep joy and a deep sense of God's presence, when you're worshiping and you're like, this is what I want more than anything, your satisfaction leads to God's glory. Uh, Again, the key act of sin, the central sin of the human being is to exchange the truth of God for a lie, to worship and serve the created things rather than the creator who is blessed forever. What do we want to do? We want to seek after God's glory. And in seeking after God's glory, we will be filled with joy. It goes on this way in verse 26. It says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, Men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, let me just say this out loud. Um, I understand I read a paragraph of scripture like this. And for some of us in this room, like the temperature just goes up. Like I get that we live in a culture, in a moment, in a time where talk about sex and sexuality in the church, out of the church, anywhere. It's just confused and loud and angry and it just the temperature rises on this. And I understand that. Like I just want you to know I get this. But here's what I want you to know tonight. Tonight's sermon is not about sex and sexuality. And the reason tonight's sermon is not about sex and sexuality is because Romans chapter one is not about sex and sexuality. Paul's not saying this is the main thing I'm trying to talk about here. We have talked about this. If you want, you can find it on our website. What Paul is trying to do is he's trying to illustrate his point here. He is trying to illustrate his point about the creation order. Let me bring you back to a point we made earlier, and it's this, that God creates the world, so God gets to define the world. This is what we said earlier, that God creates the world, and therefore God gets to define the world. And while the sermon is not on sex, I understand that what the New Testament is going to say about sex, when the New Testament is going to talk about the sexual act and where it belongs and what the context is for that, it can stir up all kinds of thoughts and feelings and emotion that run completely counter to our culture. And if it stirs up in you this kind of, that doesn't seem right, it seems too narrow, I want you to understand this. God creates the world so he gets to define the world. And here's the principle. God creates sex, so God gets to define sex. God gets to say where sex fits, where it is, what the context for it is. And the biblical teaching is so clear that the context for sex is the covenant marriage relationship of one man, one woman for life in marriage. That's the context. That's the definition that God gives for sex. God creates sex. So God gets to define sex and what it's all about. It's like this. When I was in high school, um, I had a friend named Ben. Uh, And I would go over to Ben's house all the time. And Ben had a funny little rule in his house. It was really his parents' rule, but he kind of bought into this. And I wonder if any of you have this rule. Um, The rule in Ben's house was every time you walk into this home, you must remove your shoes. Anyone else like a shoe-free home? Okay, handful of you, like 10% of you. Okay, you're you're, you're pretty serious about this. Shoe-free home. So 
you walk into Ben's house and like you roll in and he'll be like, oh, hey, would you mind like taking off your shoes? And it's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I, you know, I didn't think of it, but I'm happy to do that, right? And every time I would go into Ben's house, I'd remove my shoes. And then I'd go to my other buddy's house and I wouldn't have to remove my shoes. And at my house, we didn't have to remove my shoes. But I went over to Ben's house and I had to remove my shoes. Why? His house, his rules, right? Like that's how it rolled. And if I were to walk into Ben's house and be like, sorry, brother, I'm not gonna remove my shoes. And he's like, what? This is my house. I was like, I know it's your house, but come on, man. Like, they're shoes. Everyone wears shoes. Why you got to be so judgmental? About, like, like, I could give you all kinds of reasons, and at the end of the day, it's still Ben's house. And because it's Ben's house, I'm going to follow Ben's rules. And I need to just speak over you once more that this is God's house. You are living in God's house. You are living in God's creation. You are living in what he has created. And so we walk in the way he has done it. And I want you to know this when it comes to sex. I want you to know that God's definition of sex is for our good. It's for our good. Like God is not up in heaven, like defining sex and creating rules just to make you miserable. He's not doing this because he's like, well, I'm just afraid some of you are having fun. So I'd like you to knock it off. Like God wants this for your good. And if you bristle against that, like how could God want this for my good? If it feels so right to me, I want you to remember that your God is a father in heaven. And fathers always know what's best for their little kids. And little kids often want things that just doesn't feel, it just feels right to them. And yet the father knows. It's like my two-year-old son. Like if my two-year-old son had his way, this morning I woke him up, 7 a.m. He comes downstairs, wants breakfast. You know what he wanted for breakfast this morning? Popsicles. Because that's what he wants every morning. I want popsicles. And then what does he want for lunch? Popsicles. And then for snack, pop. Like this boy would live off popsicles if he had his way. All he wants is popsicles all the time. And then I tell him, no, like I'll give him a popsicle, but I'm not going to give him a popsicle anytime he asks, even though he deeply wants it and feels it. And I'm sure there's times his little two-year-old brain goes, well, dad, you're just robbing me of all the fun. But here's what I know as a dad. Like, I need to say this. I love my two-year-old more than he loves himself. I really do. Like, I really know what's best for him, and I really want what's best for him. And even in times he's being reckless, whether it's with popsicles or running and jumping off the couch into, like, a spike that's going to kill him. Like, I know better. Not only does my heart go out for him, because I actually have wisdom more than him. As a dad, I have more heart for him and more wisdom for him. And here's what I want to ask you tonight when it comes to sex. Will you trust the wisdom and heart of God when it comes to sex? That's the question for you. Will you trust the heart of God for you? He is not after your misery. He is not after your pain. He is not setting up rules around sex and boundaries around sex to make you miserable and angry and bitter and stuffed down in this life so that you can't live. He has a heart for you. And then will you trust the wisdom of God? The wisdom of God that says, I created this. I know what it's for. I know where you'll thrive. I know how it can harm you. Will you trust the wisdom and the heart of God when it comes to sex? So I can get up here and give you all the reasons why the biblical sexual ethic is beautiful and good and wonderful and fruitful in life and in marriage and in everything. But I think at the core, if you're going to believe it and you're going to live like it's true, it begins with trusting the heart and the wisdom of God when it comes to your sex life. And I want to ask you if you have that. See, what Paul understands is that there's a certain group of people who don't. They've turned their back on God. They don't trust his wisdom. They don't trust his heart. And because of that, They've gone into their sin. It goes on this way, continues to describe these people who have walked away from God in verse 28. It says, furthermore, that just as they did not think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they would do what not, ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, 
evil and greed and depravity. They are full of envy and murder and strife, deceit and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. Literally, Paul's like, um, they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. So the New Testament is filled with what's called vice lists. You'll see this here in Romans chapter one. You'll see this in other parts, especially of Paul's writing. Well, they'll just describe, here's the type of life that begins to happen when you look at God and go, forget you, God. I'm doing my own thing. I'm going my own way. You start to walk into all of these various kinds of sin. And if you look at this and just map it against the culture of the world that has turned their back on God, you'll begin to see this. You begin to see these things coming out. And why has this happened? Again, the diagnosis of this is that people have turned their back on God. And when I turn my back on God, I am saying something. I am making a decision and I am declaring something that is true about reality. And I want us to know that this is true for the person who is not a believer, but it is also true for those of us who are believers. Like, I just want us to know when I turn my back on God and I decide to go do my own thing, when I walk in these sins in a habitual pattern of my life, here's what I'm saying. Sin says this, I don't need to obey God because of three words. I know better. I know better. See, this is what sin is. Sin is us looking at the God of the universe and going, yeah, I would do what you think, God, but I know better. And none of us would actually say out loud that we know better, but we all behave like it's true. Again, it's like my two-year-old son, every night I've shared this, he's in the bath time. The big problem with my two-year-old son, literally last night, again, once again, he will not stop drinking the bath water. Like this is an ongoing saga. And it's not like he accident, he's pouring water and it accidentally gets in his mouth. It's like he takes cups or like pitchers and like switches it. And when he does, he gives me this side eye, like, what's she going to do about it? Right? It is so frustrating. And I'm looking at him like, stop drinking the bath water. Not because I hate him, but because I love him. Right? I'm like, I love you too much to let you ingest your own, you know, like, ah, but he does this. And he, and, and the most frustrating part isn't that he does it. It's that he knows he's doing it. And he thinks he knows better than me and he's two, and he's an idiot. And he's my idiot, and I would do anything for him, but he's two. And he's looking at me like, Dad, if you only knew what I knew, you'd know it's okay to drink your own in the bath, right? And I'm just looking at him going like, man, like this is such a picture of what I do before my God. Because like I read this list, and I go, okay, like when do I fall into this? Do you, do you know this list includes gossip? Which we've taken to be just like something we kind of do in this world. And you're like, I don't gossip, but I do walk into rooms and go, you'll never know what I heard. Can I tell you? Just promise not to tell anyone, right? In that moment, you're about to gossip. I've done this. And every time I walk into a room, close the door, I'm like, you want to hear something juicy? I, I don't say that. But you know, like, but like anytime you're like, let me share this thing. It's not mine to share. Let's talk about her behind her back. Let's talk about him. You know what I'm doing? I'm looking at God. I'm like, I know you said don't gossip, but sorry, God, I know better. I'm going to have a good time right now. That's what we do. It says that we would not be people um, who have um, greed. Well, greed is this thing like we just look, look at God. We're like, God, I know you said not to be greedy, but it's not that I'm greedy. It's just that I need to constantly buy things for myself and never think of others. You know, like we just think that's the way we can operate. We do this with sex. We do this with foul language, right? Like the God of the universe says like no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Let no filthy or disgusting talk come out of your mouth. And yet some of us just like decide to talk in this kind of way about women or about people of color. And we just decide to speak in this vulgar, disgusting kind of way. But you think you know better? You think it's okay? You think God doesn't really care about what comes out of your mouth? Like, I just want to challenge us. 
What we do is we look at the God of the universe and we go, yeah, God, I know what you said, but I know better. Like, it's just now far too many college students who are Christians and they say they love Jesus and they follow after him, but then they just get like completely ripped and drunk on the weekend. And God says very clearly, like, do not get drunk. And they just go, yeah, yeah, but that applies to someone else I know better. Like, I know better. It says here that they disobey their parents. Like, there's actually a burden in our lives that we would honor our parents. But some of us don't do that because we just think we know better. Like, it says in the very end here, he says they have no love, they have no mercy. You know that the Bible actually calls you to have mercy? And the Bible doesn't say have mercy with people who are easy to have mercy with. That would be easy, right? It wouldn't actually be mercy. You're supposed to have mercy on the people that are hard to have mercy on. And yet we look at the people who we just despise in this world. We're like, but do you know who they voted for? Do you know what kinds of things they posted on their Instagram? I hate that person. Sin says, I know better than God. And God has given us a way to live. And here's what Paul says. You know what the problem with the human condition is? That we have looked at the God of the universe who has created us and said, forget you, God. I know better. I'm going to go my own direction. And listen, when a person decides they know better than God, they lose their joy. They lose their joy. And if you are walking joylessly right now, I want to boldly stand here and say this, that is there some place in your life you have turned your back on your God and said, I know better. That will always rob you of your joy. If you are walking in a dry season, a joyless season, I'm not willing to say that you have sin and I know for sure. I just want you to ask the question, is there any place I've turned my back on God? Because when a person decides that they know better than God, they lose their joy. And let me say it this way. When a society decides that knows better than God, they lose their sanity. They do. And when society decides we don't need God, we're going to walk away from God, we're going to do our own thing, it starts to get into places that are absolutely crazy. And if you've ever looked around the world and been like, things are just crazy, Paul says that's what's going to happen. Like, this is exactly the template for what's going to happen when people turn their backs on God. Here's how it closes in verse 32. It says, although they knew God's righteous decree, and those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So, so there's this burden here at the end of chapter one. Paul says, okay, there's this problem with sin going on and there's this problem with people turning their backs on God saying, forget you, God, I know better. I'm gonna go my own direction. But then part of the problem isn't just that they're doing things. Do you see here in verse 32, it says that they approve of those who are practicing them. And this is what we see actually all throughout the scriptures. There's this burden, not only that you would not sin, but that you wouldn't celebrate what God calls sin. Like Isaiah chapter five and verse 20 says this, woe to those of you who call evil good and good evil. And that's just like a burden for me. Like, you know what questions I'd like to ask myself from time to time? Do I laugh at anything the Bible calls sin? Do I think anything's funny that God actually says that breaks my heart? I'm laughing, God's crying, there's a mismatch there. Do I celebrate anything that God calls wicked? Do I approve of anything that just kind of makes sense in our culture, but God actually looks at it and goes, no, that's not right, that's not good. Like, I don't want to be this person who just kind of agrees with everything and is good with everything. And here's what I think has happened. There's been this kind of deception that has happened for a generation of Christians, where we have come to believe that if we're truly to be loving, like here at this church, we talk about living and loving like Jesus all the time. And so some people have taken that to mean to live and love like Jesus means to just kind of like smile and approve and never say anything negative about anyone ever. But I want to be clear on this tonight. Love does not mean agreeableness and approval. Pastor Brian Williams said this last week. He talked about Jesus was often disagreeable. 
Like love does not mean I just always agree with everyone and what they say always. It doesn't mean I always give people what they want. It was like a couple um, years ago, I'll never forget this phone call because someone calls the church uh, and they wanted to speak to a pastor. And so it got put through to me. And I think it must've been some kind of prank, but it wasn't, it was real life. This person calls and they say, hey, listen, um, I'm in a real tough situation right now trying to figure out what to do with my business. Things seem to be going under. I need to secure a loan from the bank, uh, but I can't afford the loan and my family can't afford to co-sign. So I would like the church to co-sign for me on my business's loan. Just to be clear, the answer is no, right? Like, no, no, the church is not going to put themselves at risk for this random business. And like, like, this is crazy thing. Like the answer, if you're like, oh, that sounds interesting. Like, no, no, it's not interesting. The answer is a hard no. And it's not a no because I hate the person. I don't even know the person. It's not a no because I don't like their business. I don't even know their business. It's just a no because that's not what we do. So I told the person in the nicest possible terms, I'm so sorry for what's going on. And I would love to pray for you. I just need you to know we don't actually do that. Co-signing on loans isn't what we do as a church. And so I'm not going to be able to help you today. And then what proceeded to happen was a bunch of words said toward me that I will not speak in a sermon from this stage. And then that was communicated to me. And then I was told at the very end that I'm not a Christian. I'm not very Christian. That wasn't very loving. And here's the trap, the trap that some of you can fall into. I just really mean this. I'm burdened by this. The trap that you can fall into is that anytime someone accuses you of being not loving or not Christian, that you can cave because you're so afraid of being called not loving so afraid of being told, well, you're not approving, you're not agreeing, you're not on board with what I want to do, and you're so afraid of being called unloving, you're so afraid of being called judgmental, that you're not actually living into the life God calls you to. And listen, you're not actually walking in love. If you cave anytime put someone puts pressure on you to agree or be on board with them, that's not walking in love. Here's what love means. Love means seeking the highest and greatest good of the other. That's what love is. Love does not mean agreeing with people on everything. You can be a Christian who from time to time says, no, I'm not going in that direction. I know the whole culture is going that way. I'm going a different way. You can be a Christian who just says, listen, I'm not going to give in to what everyone says and what everyone wants of me. I'm not going to agree with everything. Why? Love is not about agreeing with everyone. Love is seeking the highest and the greatest good of the other. And sometimes seeking the highest and greatest good of the other means saying things they don't particularly want to hear. That's what love is. Now, what's my point here? That if you want to be the type of person who pushes against this culture that has shaken its fist at God, said, forget you, God, I know better. I'm going my own direction. That sometimes you're going to look disagreeable. Sometimes you're not going to look like you're on board. Sometimes you're not going to approve. Sometimes it's going to appear unloving. But we have to draw it back to what the actual problem is. Like, remember the very beginning of the sermon. I said that effective treatment begins with accurate diagnosis, right? Like in order to effectively treat what's going on in our world, in our culture, in our nation today, we have to accurately diagnose it. And here was the claim, and I hope you've seen this all throughout Romans chapter one, that the world is the way it is because human beings have turned their back on God. That's what we've talked about all night. The world is the way it is because human beings have turned their back on God. And if that is in fact the diagnosis of Romans one, which I believe Paul is exactly teaching, the world is the way it is because we've turned our back on God. I want you to know that the solution is going to have to address human beings turning their back on God. And so many people want the church to come up with a group of solutions that have nothing to do with turning people's hearts back to God. Like I can't tell you, it's like once or twice a week, someone comes to me with some cause, some politician, some bill, something they want us to speak out on in the culture or the political sphere. Because if we could just mobilize enough voters, if we could just get this person in office, if we could just get this judge, but I want you to know that culture isn't the root of the problem, so it's not the root of the answer. I want you to know that politics is not the root of the problem. It is not the root of the answer. 
I want every eye on the room on me right now, I want to say this clearly, that if the problem is sin, the answer is Jesus. That's what we believe here. If the great problem of our world is that people have sinned and turned their back on God and gone their own direction, the only answer is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who died for our sins, went into the grave, rose from the grave, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. That's our answer. Like our answer is not to try to tinker around the edges of the problems. It's to go right to the heart of the problem. If the problem is sin, the answer is Jesus. And so what does that mean for everyone in this room? If you want to be a part of the answer for what's going on in our culture and our nation and our society right now, your job, yes, vote, yes, help people, yes, say things out loud, but you need to be a part of bringing people to Jesus. That's what we need to be about. That's what we need to be passionate about. You want to change the world? Bring someone to Jesus. Because the great problem for people in this world isn't all the systems around them. It's the fact that they've turned their back on God. And because countless millions have done that, we've created a world filled with chaos. Bring people to Jesus. He's the answer. Can I just confess something to you? Um, our band can make their way up. Um, over the course of the last couple of years, there have been a lot of things going on in the world, right? That's kind of like the understatement of ever, right? Um, and, and I think the temptation for me over the last couple of years has been to get so caught up in all that's going on. I'm just going to confess to you, um, I've taken my eye off this ball. I've just not been as evangelistic. I've not been as serious about telling people about Jesus, inviting them to church, insisting that they would come and know Jesus, and actually creating space in my world for people to come know Jesus. And I just want you to know tonight I'm publicly repenting of that. Like tonight I need to change. Tonight I want to invite some of you to do the same. I just think over the last couple of years, us church people just kind of became insulated. We're like, the world's crazy. We'll just get together in church. And the world is crazy. Therefore, we need to get together in church, but we need to bring someone else. And I want to challenge you to invite people to church. I want to challenge you to share the gospel. I want to challenge you to be open with your faith, to be bold, to be courageous, because if the problem is sin, the answer is Jesus. And that's what we must do. We must bring people to know Jesus. And if that's at some other church, praise God for that. This isn't about growing Calvary. So many of you go to other churches. Awesome. Bring someone to those other churches. And if Calvary's your home, bring someone here. Tell them about Jesus. Invite them to come with you. The great problem in our world is we have turned our back on God. And you know what our blessed mission is? That we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ who say, be reconciled to Christ today. That's not the pastor's job. That's all of our jobs. That we get to be a part of this together. So I want to invite you toward that. And here's what I'm going to do. Just all across this room, would you just bow your heads, close your eyes. Um... I know we talked about some hard things tonight, but the thing that just energizes me is that the answer is Jesus and that we can commit to being a Jesus people who just bring people to know Jesus and invite people to church and boldly share the gospel. Man, I shared tonight and just tried to be honest at the end and just say, man, I've taken my eye off that ball. And in some ways I've missed out on the opportunity over the last couple of years to really be a bold evangelist who loves the Lord and invites people to know him. And if that's you across this room, if you would say that, that's me too. And tonight I need to just kind of come back to this heart where I'm leading people to Jesus. You don't even have to raise your hand. Would you just nod your head and say, that's me? All across this room, I see you. If that's you tonight, I just want to pray for you. I want to pray that the God of the universe would fill you with Holy Spirit kind of courage, that you would be bold and courageous and that sometime in the next couple of weeks, you would invite someone to church, that you would sit across for a coffee table from someone and tell them about Jesus, the crucified son of God. I wanna pray that you would have that kind of courage in your life as I pray for myself as well. So Father in heaven, we know what the problem is. We know the world's turned their back on God. I know that because I have. God, I walked away, I turned away, I, I went in my own way, and yet your son Jesus saw me and he rescued me and he saved me by his blood and by his sacrifice on the cross. And so God, because he's rescued me, help me rescue others. Help me point the way back to Jesus. 
I pray for those in this room that know they've taken their eye off that ball. God, help them to be bold and courageous and fearless, to invite people to church, to talk about Jesus, to share the gospel and to let your light shine in this world. So God, I pray for our church. May we be an evangelistic church. May we be a place where Jesus is exalted. May we be a place that turns hearts back to God by the power of your spirit, by the blood of your son, to the glory of the Father. We pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said.